1: Funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org slash podcast.
2: Listener supported WNYC Studios.
3: Wait, you're listening. (laughs) Okay.
4: Alright.
3: Okay. Alright. <coughs> You're listening, listening to Radio
5: Lab Lab.
4: Radio Lab. From W N Y C
5: and N P R.
6: Hello, hello, hello. Um How do I want to introduce this tape to you? Okay,
3: I'll make sure that
6: have you heard this tape, Croach? Uh, I have not. This is actually the first, one of my first radio pieces.
1: You're not going to be able to hear what we're saying as we're in free fall.
6: And uh, I had two friends who were in love.
1: I want
7: to take a picture of the two of you suited up with your helmets on. I
6: have since fallen out of love and fallen in love with other people. But at the time, they were very much in love, and they had decided they were going to go skydiving. Tape in there? Together. Together.
1: Everything looks good. You ready for this? Yeah, I
6: guess let's so. Let's go skydiving. So this is my friend Jordan. He is getting into a plane. All right, so let's check your harness. He's got a mini disc recorder strapped to his chest. And I should just say that the piece ended up being really dumb, right. but it contains the best moment of tape I think I've ever recorded. Really? And you're going to hear it coming up. Okay, so as Jordan gets up into the sky...
0: I just hope I don't mess myself.
6: They're like 7,000, 8,000 feet. I don't remember the number, but they open the door... Steps just to the edge, and he's about to go. You'll hear, there's gonna be a moment. Just listen. Okay. Okay, he is out of the plane now. He's hurling through space, free falling. Within like a few seconds, he's at 100 miles an hour. up to 150, huh? 175 miles an hour, yeah. maybe 200, I don't know, and
3: yeah. there. how did you like that? That <laughs> was incredible. Oh, oh my
6: god. That's the moment where the parachute opens. I cannot believe it. And he is floating.
0: God,
8: that's amazing.
6: What happens to the girl? I don't know. You don't know? Well, her mini disc recorder malfunctioned on the way down. (gasps) But let's just rewind that back for a second. (laughs) That transition right there from falling body to floating body? Yeah. I love that. Because at first he sounds like this dinosaur falling through (laughs) the air, but then the sound changes and it's just like... And I don't know, it's like this moment of somebody falling out
9: of control. And then falling back in.
6: Yeah. seemed like a good way to open this show, because this is going to be a show where we take this idea of
9: falling... And we walk it in all kinds of different directions. Like? The point comes where you snap. That's one. I loved him so much. That's
7: one. It's very dark. It's very hellish. And um, that's one. I was netting 81 stuff. There are
6: 14,932 ways to fall on the radio. In this hour, we will bring you eight. I'm Jan Abumrad. I'm Robert Krillewich. This is Radiolab. And we are
0: falling. <laughs>
9: Number one. This one, this one is about—I don't. Would you call it terror or just t- no? Uh, it's about time, really. Time. Okay, so this—we'll just call this one Falling Time. Howdy. This is David Eagleman. This is David here. He's a neuroscientist, but back when he was a kid,
10: how old were you? Just to sort of—I was—I was eight years old.
6: He had an experience which he says changed his life. Yeah. He was uh, playing in his subdivision in Houston,
10: and there was a house nearby. That was under construction. My father told me not to go climbing around on the house under construction, but I was a boy, so I did. And I was looking at the edge of the roof, and I stepped on it, but in fact it was tar paper hanging over the edge, and I I fell.
9: Oh, so you stepped onto the air, in effect. You just went, whew!
10: Exactly. And, um... What happened was the event seemed to take a very long time. I thought about whether I had time to grab for the edge of the roof, and I realized it was too late for that. So then I was looking down at the ground as the red brick floor was coming towards me, and I was thinking about Alice in Wonderland, and how this must be what it was like for her when she fell down the rabbit hole. Hmm.
9: How long, by the way, was it from the top of the roof to the ground below.
10: 0. 0.86 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> That's how long it takes to fall 12 feet. I calculated that later. That'd be 1,000. One <laughs>
6: yeah. And this whole experience left David Eagleman with a question that he could not get out of his mind. What
10: happens to people when they're in a life or death situation and they have these thoughts that seem to take a long time? So at some point I realized I needed to study this. How would you, how would you even study that? Well, The first thing I did, I took my entire laboratory to Astroworld, Astroworld, which is the amusement park here in Houston. (laughs) And we went on all of the scariest roller coasters. We brought all of our equipment and our stopwatches and had a great time. But it turns out nothing there was scary enough to actually induce this fear for your life that appears to be required for, (laughs) for the slow motion effect. So I searched around and I finally found something called scad diving. SCAD diving Stands for suspended catch air device Where do you do that? Turns out it's illegal in Houston But I found one in Dallas (laughs) 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 So we made a road trip up to Dallas
8: Alright, jump number one
6: we actually found a reporter in Dallas who agreed to give us a try.
3: And then I'll put this on over the heart.
8: No one's ever died on this thing, right?
11: Nope. Okay. This is April. Whew, I feel like my heart's in my throat.
6: She's very brave.
10: You ride up to the top of this tower in this very rickety little elevator type of thing.
0: Okay, we're rising up in the elevator right now.
10: 150 foot tall tower.
0: Not too fast.
10: Climbing up and up and up.
5: It doesn't seem that far when you're down there. Up here it seems really far.
10: <laughs> it's like a 15 story building. Yeah, we're halfway.
5: Oh man. Okay, yeah, this is just halfway. I'm already freaking out.
10: And.
12: My hands are starting to shake.
10: The very top. Mm-hmm. You're suspended.
0: Like this? Yep. Okay. You're
10: hooked up to a carabiner.
0: Oh god, okay. Sit all the way back,
9: lean back. Okay, so I want you to imagine this. You're up in the sky, you are facing the clouds, not the ground, you are attached to something which is about to be severed, and you will fall totally free into the void, unable to see what's about to happen to you, presuming a net Oh God, okay. Don't let me die. Three. Two. Really nervous
6: right now. And? Okay, wait, 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 wait. One thing I forgot to mention. Uh, April actually wasn't part of David's study, but if she had been, she would have been wearing around her wrist this little device.
10: New device called the perceptual chronometer.
6: It's about the size of a watch, and it flashes numbers super fast. Yeah, yeah. Way too fast to see normally.
10: But the thought is, if
6: April falls and everything starts to slow down, well, then these numbers should slow too, so that if she looks at her wrist
10: as she's falling, she should be able to now read the watch. That would be impossible under normal circumstances. Back to April.
9: Really nervous right now.
10: 3,
6: 2, and...
9: Ah!
8: Oh my god! Oh my god! Oh my god, that's the scariest moment
5: of
7: my life. Oh my god!
10: I should probably tell you guys the results of the study, but...
7: yeah, I yeah, also... so do
6: people report that time slowed down enough for them to read the number?
7: I'm alive.
10: No. No? Turns out, when you're falling, you don't actually see in slow motion. Aww. Aww. Yeah, it's not equivalent to the way a slow motion camera would work. Even though people feel like it's going in slow motion, it's something more interesting than that.
6: Because here's the thing, right after people did the jump, he would ask them
10: how long they thought their fall took. The right answer, if they would had a stopwatch, just under three seconds. But what people would say?
0: How long, when you were falling, how long did it fall? For?
7: 10 seconds. It felt, felt like a turn, uh, time was stopped.
6: So how do you explain that, that like time's not slowing in the moment, but seems to be slowing after
10: the moment? Well, I came to understand that it's a trick of memory. Normally, our memories are like sieves. We're, we're, we're not writing down most of what's passing through our system.
6: But he thinks that when you go, <laughs> you know, life or death moment.
10: In that instant, our memories go (laughs) wide open. Because that's what memory is for. It's for when everything hits the fan, you want to write it down and remember it. So all of it goes right to your
6: hard drive. The clouds, the feeling of the air.
10: Oh, look, there's a guy in a blue shirt. So when you read that back out, the experience feels like it must have taken a very long time. Mmm, it must have.
9: Normally, the trivial stuff gets dumped, but in this situation, it gets written. And then you realize how much trivial stuff is in there.
10: So for example, I, uh, I just recently interviewed a gentleman who had been in a motorcycle accident and as his helmet was bouncing along off the asphalt, he was composing a little song to the rhythm of his <laughs> helmet bouncing.
9: Was, was he in his helmet or had the helmet flown off yeah. of it?
10: Uh, he was in his helmet. <laughs> <laughs> that's, he was here, before I guffaw
6: too loudly, was he okay as a result of this yeah, bouncing? Yeah, he was okay. Wow, that's amazing. So his head was going, dunk, 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 and he was like, hey. Good kind of a good rhythm.
0: My, what a peculiar place to have a party. One pill makes you larger and one pill makes you small. Goodness, what if I should fall right through the centre of... <coughs> you go chasing rabbits and... Number
6: two Falling in Love from producer Lulu Miller. So set this up for us.
5: Well, this is a love story, and in some ways, it's a very typical love story. And in other ways, it's just not. Yeah. The girl is a really good friend of mine. We're going to call her Sarita. And the boy
12: we will call Simon.
5: When was the first time that you
12: ever saw Simon? Um, I don't remember the exact moment, but I do remember sitting in the lunchroom with the girls at the table and sort of scoping out the boys. And he was definitely the skinniest. (laughs) He just looked like a really nice guy. Olive skinned, thick hair. And he made really good eye contact. To the point where it's a little flirty. There's no break in the eye contact. It's like constant. To the point where I think it could be uncomfortable for some people. But I just really, I really liked it.
5: When was the first time you talked to him?
12: Well, we had a class together our freshman year. We talked a lot in class and after class, on the paths around campus.
5: And that's how it went, all freshman year. Sophomore year. Junior year. Mm -hmm. They were sort of like particles that just kept colliding in the lobby of the dorm, on the sidewalk. And each time it was new. A new topic or a new idea. For instance, one of them would walk by carrying a book. Poisonwood Bible. And the other one would say, oh, I love that book. Yeah.
12: They just clicked. And again, the eye contact. We would talk and be connected with the eyes. That's what I really was falling for about him. And there was like an attentiveness beyond.
5: I wanna ask you one thing, which, like, you just said, I'm falling for him. Mm-hmm. Is that the way it felt? I mean, people always say falling in love. Did it
12: feel like falling? yeah it does because it feels out of control hmm. and there's a moment where it feels like i let go and allow myself to feel it totally
5: though so there were some moments where she wondered if she should yeah like sometimes she'd walk by simon on the path look up and smile and he'd snubbed
12: me but then we run into each other and we talk she'd let herself start falling again this is really fun in this moment and I realized years later that every time we ran into each other, he has no idea that those were me. <laughs> really? Yeah. Hi. Hello. Okay.
0: <laughs> could you Hello. hear me
11: vaguely?
5: <laughs>
8: <laughs> yeah.
5: Um, Can we start out talking about your condition? Yeah. What's it called?
8: Prosopagnosia.
5: Prosopagnosia. Yes. Sounds like a delicious fruit salad. It could be a cocktail. <laughs> and what is that? What is that word?
8: Uh, let's see. Well, agnosia is a lack or an inability, and prozo is the Greek for face. Oh. Face blindness.
5: This, of course, is Simon.
8: There's a little piece of my brain that's missing, and I, I have a really, really hard time recognizing faces, remembering faces.
5: And how does that work? Is it just that you forget where you know people from?
8: No. If I passed you in the street. I can't swear that I've ever seen you before.
12: So he didn't know. He couldn't string those together as all the same person having the same conversation.
8: Right. No way.
12: Even their first kiss. He didn't realize he was kissing
5: a girl he'd actually known for years.
8: <laughs> yes.
5: Yeah. So were you like totally shocked? I was totally blown away. Who was that person to you?
8: I knew it was the cheese plate girl. <laughs> yeah. I did not know it was Fieldhouse girl.
12: So what did you say? I think I just asked a lot of questions.
8: You know, she was interested. Like, oh. How does this work? Yeah. So I probably said, if you, you know, went to the park and started looking at trees, their shapes are different, their sizes are different. But to try to remember a 1,000 or 2,000 of those. How
12: do you pick it up?
8: It's just hard. It's just computationally difficult.
12: Yeah. What details did
5: you know about her?
8: I knew it was good to be with her. The experience of being with her. I think ran ahead of my sense of her biography. So it was a leap. It was a leap. Yeah. Let's try this.
5: So they embark on this relationship, which, you know, has its quirks. Right. Like, for instance, if they were meeting up somewhere public. I'm going to need to wave
12: first. Hmm. And backpacks. He's always got to wear the same one.
8: Voice really helps.
12: But I would get a little bit anxious when we'd have to meet each other somewhere. Yeah. Because I knew if another curly-haired girl walked there before I did. I'm
8: thinking, is that her? He
12: would, like, smile and wave at
8: her. (laughs) It's just awkward. It's just kind of embarrassing.
5: Yeah. And somewhere along the line, Sarita found out that that eye contact that drew her in, it wasn't really about her. It was something he did
12: with everyone on the off chance that they're his friend. Wow. That's what I think the eye contact is. So did that did that make um, you step back at all? No. By then I had already fell.
5: And plus I think Sarita at that time was getting really into Buddhism. And not just a little bit. She went and lived with Buddhist nuns for a year in Sri Lanka. And so the idea
12: of impermanence and you know we think we have a self but what really is a self? What it means to know someone? All of that was part of my world and so this idea that he didn't recognize me didn't seem so as important as the present moment.
8: It it just kept getting better.
5: And then what happened? You graduate, and you said, did you move in together? Yeah. Was it in
12: Philly? It was in Philly. On Sansom Street.
5: A year and a half goes by. And then one day...
8: We woke up and, swear to God, like all the leaves fell off the trees. Fall turning into winter.
5: And Simon told Sarita it was over. Something about a core that I'm lacking. He said you were lacking a core? yeah what does that mean i don't know
12: i'm not sure what it means
8: good god i knew the core would come up the core the core of what i what i was trying to talk about was lingering doubt whether whether this was it wondering could i fall further
12: he just wasn't sure that he loved me and then at that point kind of backtracked and denied having ever really loved me. Yeah. Um, but that's how it was. Did you feel like you at a certain point started to actually fall out of love with him? Like, No, like- there was no falling. It was just like I was at the bottom of a well sitting and stewing. I loved him. Yeah so much and would you see him in the neighborhood because you're still neighbors right right yeah we would see each other around at parties and he was working at a restaurant that had an outdoor patio and I walked by there a few times without him knowing it was me where I could see him and look at him but you got to just be hidden yeah I got to just walk by. Yeah. So there is comfort in that. Yeah.
8: Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's hard somehow. Yeah. That um, I wouldn't. That I wouldn't see her. She, it's like she faded back into the crowd. Yeah. Quickly.
12: I had become lost.
8: It's actually haunting to me
13: to hear that.
5: Supported in part by the National Science Foundation and the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. More information about Sloan at www.sloan.org. Radiolab is produced by WNYC and
0: distributed by NPR. Goodbye. End of message.
5: Radiolab is supported by BetterHelp. Whether it's already 2 a.m. on a fun night out, graduation time, a new year, we can find ourselves wishing we had more time, wondering where it all went. But there's a question. If we were magically given that time back, what would we do with it? Perhaps you'd spend more time with a friend that you've lost touch with or petting your dog or just noticing the sweetness of doing nothing. The best way to let those special things into your life is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority going forward. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Radiolab today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Radiolab. Radio Lab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guaranteed details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live.
13: Hi, I'm Adam Grant, host of the podcast Rethinking a show where I talk to some of today's greatest thinkers about the unconventional ways they see the world. On Rethinking, you'll get surprising insights from scientists, leaders, artists, and more. People like Reese Witherspoon, Malcolm Gladwell, and Yo-Yo Ma. Hear lessons to help you find success at work, build better relationships, and more. Find Rethinking wherever you get your podcasts.
10: Hey, I'm
6: Jad Abumran. I'm Robert Kulwich. This is Radio Lab, and today, uh... Today we're falling in many different flavors. And we're at number three. So next we have a story of a different kind of fall. All
9: right. Or faller. Yeah. Comes from science writer David Quammen. One article in particular part that wrap. he wrote caught our attention. <laughs> All right. I'm going to quote you to yourself. Okay. Okay. Nowadays, true enough, we know quite a bit about cats. They've been dissected in uncountable numbers. Their anatomy, their physiology, their behavior have been minutely studied. But there's so much we still don't know. Among all the other intractable issues, one in particular interests me, and that is, what's the terminal velocity of a plummeting cat? Why? (laughs) Can you
11: give me a little history? Why, Why did that question interest you? I mean, when I used to write for Outside Magazine, I would browse through journals and I would come across obscure papers. How I happened upon the Journal of the American Veterinary Medical Association, familiarly known as JVAMA,
9: <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember. But I'm sure that that was the starting point. Because it was in that journal that David ran across a research paper yeah. by two vets.
11: Wayne Whitney and Cheryl Melhoff, who were in um, the midtown veterinary hospital and they noticed that um that in manhattan there were a lot of cats falling out of windows high windows falling off ledges falling off roofs and what what is what is a lot i mean
6: how many cats were coming into this place
0: um, we saw 132 cats fall in a five-month summer period. 132.
9: That's yeah. Anne Hohenhaus. She actually works in the, um, in the veterinary hospital.
0: here at the Animal Medical Center.
9: And she's been there since that research paper was written back in 1986.
0: When I came to New York City, I said, what do you mean cats fall out of buildings? It doesn't make sense. I said, why would the cat fall out?
9: But we'll get back to her in just a little bit hundred and thirty-two in five months? That's, that's almost really? a rain of cats. Well, no, don't say that because I think people should visit New York without, um, without five, cat uh, eight, receiving umbrellas. 62. What are you doing? I'm doing the math to see how many that is in a week of... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, can <laughs> you do a day? 30, a, five days. It's Jeez, about, that's about a
6: cat a day.
9: It's a, It's a shame. We can all agree about that.
6: But according to David, it's actually not as much of a shame
11: as you would think. Twenty-two of the cats that they saw had fallen from eight stories... Or higher. And out of those 22, only one died. So 21 cats survived from eight stories or higher.
6: Wow, that's a long way.
11: And there was one cat that fell 32 stories, and the cat had a little bit of sort of thoracic bruising and a chipped tooth. And that was it. So the question, I mean, how in the world do cats, I mean, we all know cats
6: land on their feet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how do they do that? Like, these are not magical creatures. Well...
11: If you go back about a thousand years, they you know it was thought that they consorted with witches, with the devil, uh, and their reputation got darker and darker. Mm-hmm. The more people started to distrust and dislike cats, the more they started to do horrible things to them, they would put cats in a barrel and then they would run the barrel through with swords. Oh! Um, also throwing them out of windows. The defenestration of cats. W- what does a defenestration what? mean?
6: Is throwing
9: it... out the window. Really? The fenestra is the There's window. A word so for if you d. De- oh, Chad, yeah, add that to your active vocabulary today. <laughs> <laughs> I plan to. Um,
6: so what would happen when they would defenestrate these cats? The cats would land on their feet and walk away,
12: <laughs> and that made people even crazier. <laughs>
9: No, of course, we love our cats now. We don't do that to our cats anymore. But when we went to visit Anne back at the veterinary hospital, mm-hmm. we were asking her about the falling cats research paper, which was called the feline high-rise... The feline high-rise syndrome. Uh, then the mystery of how cats can fall from these amazing heights and survive got a lot deeper. Yeah.
0: Well, cats that fell f- less than five stories...
9: They did fine, she said. Not too
0: bad. Cats that fell over nine stories.
9: They did fine too, she says.
0: Not so bad.
9: Which is weird. But
0: cats that fell between five and nine.
9: Between five floors and nine
0: floors? Had really serious injuries and had more injuries per cat.
6: So cats that fell a little ways were okay. Cats that fell a long ways were okay, weirdly. But this five to nine thing?
9: And so, how you, yeah, how do you account for
0: that? Yeah, so, what is that? So, the, so, we had to get a physicist to help us explain this.
9: This is where we get back to what Kwamen calls the terminal velocity issue. Or here's how Ann put it to us.
0: Well, say you're living
9: on the 30th floor you know, of a building happened? and it's summertime.
0: You get done at work at five, you go home, get there about six, the apartment's hot and stuffy, and you open up those windows. And Fluffy says, hmm, I'd like that pigeon out there. And the next thing you know, the misstep and. As the cat starts to fall, he's all disoriented.
11: And almost immediately, probably within the first six feet,
0: the cat's brain says, okay, turn your front half over, now bring your back legs around.
11: That's like instinct. Cat can apparently do that move lickety
9: split. But the cat is still speeding up,
0: going faster and faster.
9: Three floors, five floors, seven floors. And after falling about nine floors and accelerating to speeds up
11: to about 60 miles an hour,
6: something happens.
11: You hit an equilibrium between the pull of gravity and wind resistance. What he means is gravity
6: is pulling down on you and the peak pull is between five and nine floors for a cat. But after nine floors, the wind resistance, which all the while has been pushing back up on you,
11: starts to slow you down. You don't speed up anymore. So that's your cruising speed. That's your cruising speed. After the cats hit terminal velocity and the sensation of acceleration was gone, they relaxed. They sort of stretch out like a flying squirrel, and then they hit the ground, belly flop. <laughs> and you're saying
6: that because they hit the cruising speed and then relax into the flying squirrel, the impact is less?
9: Yes.
0: Yeah, and, and our record here, it wasn't in this paper, but our record is 42 floors and the cat walked away.
9: Wow. 42 floors. Is that a lucky cat or is that just plain physics? Should cats everywhere go to the 42nd floor before jumping out of the window? No cat
6: can ever
0: jump out of a window.
6: That's right. Stay indoors. No fluffy. Back. Okay, so the next uh, falling... What are we gonna call these? Falling uh, f- falling, falling episodes. Now is there an
9: F word you could use? Features. Yes. Oh great, great. Our next falling feature. Oh boy.
6: <laughs> okay, no, I mean it's up to you.
9: We invited Columbia University physics professor Brian Green into our studio.
3: Did I get to play with any buttons? Uh
9: yeah. We wanted to ask him, well, really one of the most basic questions you could ask a physicist. Why do we
4: fall?
3: You know, we all know that Newton wrote down a law of gravity to calculate how gravity acts from one object to another. Yeah, like if you drop your pen. That's right. But there's a difference between being able to predict what will happen and be able to explain why it happens. And Newton could not explain why it happens. He could only tell you what would happen. Hmm. But, I mean, how it works is it just pulls the pen down. What does that mean, though? How does it pull it? I don't see anything between the table and your pen. So what is the agent responsible for the
9: pull? Um. Hmm. This is something even Albert Einstein himself couldn't quite figure out.
3: He was struggling to understand how the force of gravity works.
9: And it was a big, big puzzle. And the legend goes that Albert Einstein was walking around one day and he found himself imagining a person riding in an elevator. And all of a sudden, the cable gets cut and the elevator starts a plunge right down towards the earth. The
3: version I know is that he was actually sitting at his desk looking out the window and was imagining window washers falling sort of from their scaffolding. But it's the same, same exact idea. <laughs> but
9: anyway, we're going to stick with the elevator version for now. <laughs> Einstein, imagine this person standing actually on a bathroom scale. In the elevator. In the elevator. This is before the cable gets cut. If the
3: person is in the elevator standing on a scale, they see that they weigh 160 pounds. And then, snip. When the elevator cable is cut, they look down at the scale and the scale will drop to zero because the scale will be falling away from their feet at exactly the same rate that their feet are falling. So their feet won't push on the scale any longer because the scale will be moving downward with them.
6: In my mind, I imagine like a
3: Hollywood movie where it's falling so fast everybody kind of drifts up. That's right. So Einstein said to himself, hang on a second. Here's an environment where, in essence, I can turn gravity off. Hmm. Another way of saying it that flips it around and may make it more clear Just as you can turn gravity off by snapping the cable, you can actually simulate gravity by pulling on the cable that pulls that elevator up really, really quickly. Because now the scale is running into your feet. If you're standing on that scale, it won't read 160, it might read 250.
6: Huh? It seems like gravity and being pulled up really fast, they're the same thing. They are. Chad, look at that. Look at you.
9: You just had the insight on your own. That's right. He You'd... walked
6: He walked us 17
3: steps, and I just made the last well, baby right. step. You did it. You did it, man. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So whenever you're faced with a gravitational problem, this allowed you to ignore gravity and translate it into a problem about motion. But does that, st- does that solve the, the what is gravity question? It just sort of... No. He then had to make one more leap. And it's not obvious how he took the final step. But the final step was to realize that the what is gravity is the curvature of space and time. That's a leap. I don't know what that means.
9: Well, this is a very difficult concept. Do you understand it? I I understand what Einstein tells you when he explained it. He said, if you imagine the universe as a vast rubber mat, a rubber mat held really, really taut, Uh let's just take, oh, I don't know, let's take the earth and just plop it onto the mat. So what just happened? Uh, well, it sunk into the rubber. It stretched the rubber, didn't it? Yeah. I mean, and so the rubber sinking. is kind of curved around underneath it. Yeah. In Einstein's mind, he thought maybe this is how to explain gravity. This is what gravity is—that curved shape of space. He said, hmm.
3: and the pen falls because it's following a contour in that curved space-time environment. Uh, so, like, if we're living on the curve, then we're constantly
9: falling. We're falling constantly down moving that down that curve. Yeah. We have no choice.
3: And the reason why right now I feel the chair pushing up on me is, again, my body also wants to slide down, but the chair is getting in the way. So we're all sort of on some kind of slope sliding down unless we're... That's right. That's right. I like that. Yeah.
6: I'm now an adherent to that theory. There you go. (laughs) Not knowing anything else.
9: (laughs) Now for number five. Should we call it falling fortunes or... Well, falling fortunes is a good one for this, I think. Yeah. Because someone is seeking fame and fortune and then... False.
4: The idea of the uh, gravity hero, uh, to me, one of the things that it it goes along with... uh, Was that a
6: term that was used? Gravity heroes?
4: No. That's my term. I
6: like it, though. It's a really catchy term. Well, thanks. Yeah.
4: This is Garrett Soden. He's an author. Author of uh, Defying Gravity. Original title. Falling. How Our Greatest Fear Became Our Greatest Thrill, A History.
6: And speaking of history and fears and thrills, and I would add to that list, tragedy. He tells the following story.
4: It really started with uh, Niagara Falls, because up to that point, people had done all kinds of things at Niagara Falls. To back up, it is the 1850s, and at Niagara Falls, you've got these two guys
6: doing tightrope tricks over the falls. Yeah. um, A fellow named Charles Blondin. Famous
4: French wire walker. And a Canadian guy who called himself... The Great Farini. And they would duke it out. Right. Blondin came out, strung a, a rope across Niagara Falls, put a chair down, balanced on two legs, and stood on it. Well, One time he carried a guy over. Oh, wow. He had to keep upping the ante. So, so, for his greatest trick? He carried a small cast-iron stove on his back wow. with some firewood. He got out there and he put the stove down, lit a fire, had a couple of eggs in a frying pan, and made an omelet. <laughs> <laughs> right over this churning, like, rapid? Yes. Wow. So the great Farini came out with a washing machine. That was his answer to uh, <laughs> London. Wash some clothes out there, yeah.
6: But uh, the thing to know about these guys is that this this was basically just a show. Because, for example, the wire that they walked on
4: was pretty wide. About the diameter of a coffee cup. And really, they were just avoiding the big trick. The most anticipated trick. The one that everybody was waiting for. was somebody going over the falls in the barrel. The guy who did that would be the real
5: gravity hero,
4: you
6: wire-walking wusses. Niagara Falls is one of the great forces of nature. Every second, 600,000 gallons fall over the edge, pound the rocks below with such a fury that you can hear it five miles away. Which is why, in 1850, when P.T. Barnum saw the falls...
7: He said that if someone could figure out a way to go over that, that would that would be a huge stunt that would give them fame and fortune.
6: That's Joan Murray. She, I'm a poet. She's a poet. She's written in a whole book. In verse. About the first person to conquer the falls. In a barrel. And it's called?
7: Queen of the Mist. Queen of the Mist, huh.
6: Yep So it wasn't a guy then No, I just said it was a guy to set you up So that you would ask me that question Because in fact it was a woman Wow, props to her <laughs> Thank you for acting surprised What's her
7: name, Jed? Annie Taylor
6: <laughs> When we first meet Annie Taylor
7: This was 1901 She was Down on her luck
4: She'd been a uh, She'd done a lot of different things she had run a dancing school She'd been a principal uh, she had traveled all over the world
6: Her only child had died Her husband right after that and she was broke. But then it hit her. Gravity!
4: She was sitting at home. Sitting in her apartment. In Bay City, Michigan. And uh, for some odd reason, she read an article about the goings-on at Niagara Falls, and she decided she would go over Niagara Falls in a bear. Yeah. (laughs) Why? I mean, do we know?
7: She's looking to... Save herself from the poorhouse.
4: She was after money, and when
6: she read about these guys at Niagara Falls, she thought,
7: "This is it." Right.
4: So she called a, a Cooper to build the barrel. At first, he refused to build it when he heard what her plan was, but finally, he did.
6: And not long after, Annie was on a train with her barrel, headed to the falls. By the way, uh, what day are we talking about? So we have a
7: on date stamp. On October twenty-fourth. Uh, in 1901.
4: Okay. Word had spread. This was going to be a spectacle.
7: Everyone was there.
4: Mobs of people. Thousands.
6: Up and down the river. Tens of thousands. And Annie shows up. Waving to the crowd. Wearing a very fancy Victorian dress.
7: And a hat with ostrich feathers. Wow. She's quite the lady. But then they go on an island where she changes.
6: Into some gym clothes.
7: And now she gets in the barrel.
6: They tow her out to the middle of the river. And
7: then they knock and cut the rope. And off she goes to the brink.
4: The roar of the river.
7: Enormous. And it's wet at my feet, and I'm feeling while I'm in there that this is miserable.
6: interesting thing I... is that in Joan's poem,
7: she actually
6: becomes Annie.
7: I careened and spun. She's what in the barrel,
6: getting hurled down the river, tossed and turned.
7: My brain tore.
6: And as she gets closer to the edge, it's about a half-mile journey, she begins to hallucinate.
7: When I glimpse through the turbulence. There was my young husband. In his arms, our baby, trembling and whimpering as all
4: the And then? This moment of weightlessness.
7: She's going
4: down. Into the pools below. The great mass of foam and boiling water. And then she shoots out again. Through the buoyancy of the barrel about 15 feet in the air. Wow. The barrel crashes back. Back down
6: on the water. And then it floats over to some rocks, and a rescue team paddle out to the barrel right away.
4: They get the barrel, and they have to uh, saw it open.
6: The crowd, no doubt, is thinking, that woman is dead. There is nothing but a dead woman in that barrel. But when they pull her,
4: pull out, her out,
7: she's alive. I am alive. She took on this thing that the world was waiting for. And she did it. She was the first to ever try.
6: And Joan, when she was pulled out of that barrel, and presumably she's going to take the next step into fame and fortune, what happened?
7: More or less nothing. She stepped out of the barrel, and she didn't look right. She didn't look like a hero.
6: What does that mean? Well, I have kept something from you, Carl. Which mm, what? The thing I haven't told you is that not only was she wet and soggy, and according to newspaper accounts, hysterical—I mean, who wouldn't be? She was sixty-three.
7: She was your grandmother. She,
6: she was, was an older lady. Like Joan said, you know, for the hero-consuming thing. public, she just didn't look right.
4: After that exhibition, um, her manager ran off with the barrel. And Uh, he took the barrel and he started uh, going on the circuit with a lovely young woman that he claimed was Annie Taylor. No, Much better showpiece. Oh, yeah, yeah. What happened to Annie, though?
7: She would drag herself to Niagara each spring and summer. She
4: would just sit on the street with a barrel. It wasn't the original barrel, but it was a barrel. And do what? She probably had photographs of herself that she signed. And did she ever make any money off this?
7: No, Any kind of, no. she died in a poor house.
4: Which is where she didn't want to wind up, wow. but that is where she wound up.
6: And just 10 years later, somebody repeats Annie's
7: feat. A man, and he tours the world. Bastard. Yeah, bastard. But... Because the heavens are merciful.
6: During this guy's victory lap as he's traveling around the world. he's
7: He slipped... He slipped on an orange rind in Australia or New Zealand, got a compound fracture of his leg. Ha!
6: <laughs> she says that leg got gangrene, and he died.
7: Yeah, there is there is cosmic justice.
9: Since I've
2: failed.
6: back this is fernando
5: from los angeles california radio lab is supported in part by the alfred p sloan foundation enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world more information about sloan at www.sloan.org
1: radio lab is supported by betterment let's talk about you and your money you like your free time you like to relax every now and then you like to feel totally chill but your money your money likes to work Learn more about high yield cash accounts at betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank.
5: Radiolab is supported by TurboTax. TurboTax experts make all your moves count, filing with 100% accuracy and getting your max refund guaranteed. So whether you started a podcast, side-hustled your way to concert tickets, or sold Hollywood memorabilia, switch to TurboTax and make your moves count. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with
10: TurboTax Live.
6: I'm Jad Abumrad. Are you asleep? Hey. Oh. <laughs> Hi. Do you even know where you are I right now? Just Did you see like what I did with my leg? What? I kicked myself awake. You, did you see that? I heard it. <sighs> I'm Jad Abumrad. Oh, I'm Robert Krolwich. And our next falling feature is... Is falling asleep, but with a little kick. This is Radiolab. Let's do it. Well, tell me your name first and just tell me how you would like to be identified on air.
13: You can call me Fred. I like it the best. Okay. My full title is... Professor Frederick L. Coolidge, University of Colorado at Colorado Springs.
6: So just so we get our definitions right, what is a hypnic jerk?
13: It, it appears to be this, what seems to be a reflex. Everybody's experienced it. It's, it's you're still semi-conscious and you start to feel kind of dreamy. You start to feel this loosening of your thoughts, loosening of, of your reality.
6: Mm. But just as you're about to go under, he says. Just at the first
13: onset of sleep. Bam! One big
6: jerk. And then you're awake. Usually you wake up with this feeling of like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Oh, all right.
13: (laughs) And, you know. Wait, how did you start studying this? I was working at Kentucky Fried Chicken. Can I say that on the air? Yeah, For a dollar, (laughs) for a dollar an hour. And I just (laughs) thought, man. I, I still can't eat coleslaw to this day because I would do 100 <laughs> pounds of coleslaw a day. So um, I saw this ad on campus, and it said, somebody to work in a sleep lab. So I went and applied, and I ended up in the beginning cleaning toilets. But I just got into all of sleep. I thought it was fascinating. And I got fascinated by these giant jerks at the beginning of sleep. And I said, what is that? You know, And they said, yeah. ooh, that's a hypnic jerk. And I said, what is that? And they said, that's a hip jerk.
6: <laughs> <laughs> in other words, no one could really explain to him why these things happen. That's right. So he started poking around, and there were some theories, you know, having to do with, like, physiological changes in your body.
13: You know, a lowering of oxygen content or something like this. You know, but that
6: kind of explanation didn't really
13: satisfy It really doesn't say, well, why? What was its function? And um, as I started to look at the literature, I saw that we had a very long history sleeping in trees, We go back to Australopithecus afarensis. This is Lucy, three million years ago. Lucy was bipedal,
6: meaning walking on two legs. Lucy lived in the trees, but unlike the other primates, she would sometimes go down to the ground.
13: But on the ground, you've got big birds. You've got snakes, tigers, and reptiles. That ground life was stressful. But at night, she crawled up the tree for safety. She climbs up in that tree, drops food there for her baby, and she's going to drop off to sleep. Her
6: muscles loosen, her hands uncurl.
13: She starts to have that relaxation.
6: Pretty soon she can't feel the tree under her back or hear the noises down below. Mm. Stay with me, Crawlwitch. Yeah, okay. And she feels like she's floating. Or falling. Wait a second.
0: Falling.
13: Falling. That means real good idea to wake up from that sleep was such a dangerous proposition for so many millions of years that something like the hypnic jerk if some of those primates had that behavior they may have been just slightly more likely over millions of years to to adapt and survive
9: we haven't gotten rid of it yet is what he's saying so that's my jerk is just basically so i don't get eaten by a lion all these many years yeah that's what he's saying sort of like a loosey echo. Do we know this or we just uh, imagine? No, how are we going to know this? (laughs) This is just a story. But
6: there is at least one uh, tantalizing uh, bit of evidence to support this idea.
13: You ask college students, what are the most common dreams that you have? And falling is number one or number two most common theme. And if you go on a college campus, you know, thanks to OSHA, right? You have no chance of falling off anything. (laughs) They'll make sure their fullest drop is like a foot or six inches. Even then, it had big yellow and (laughs) red signs all over it. But they dream of falling? What?
6: And by the way, the next most common dream after falling is being chased by an alien in a blue dress. (laughs) No, it isn't.
0: Stay away. Is too. Don't rest your head. Don't lie down apart. Walking, and you don't always realize it, but you're always falling.
10: Well, actually, I've got, I have a random one for you guys about falling. As I was driving over here, I was thinking about it. Okay. With each step,
6: neuroscientist David Eagleman again,
10: <clears throat> you
7: fall forward slightly, and then catch yourself.
10: I started wondering what happened, falling. why is it that elderly people fall down a lot? If you go into any hospital ward, you'll see lots and lots of elderly people who are in there with broken hips and things like that because they've they've fallen. So I started asking my clinician friends and they say, Well, they have a poor sense of balance, muscle weakness, so on. I said, Could it have anything to do with timing? What do you mean? Well, one of the things I study is how the brain sends out signals to the whole body and how these signals come back. Because the strange part is the brain is situated all the way at one end of the body, all the way at the top end, and it's controlling this huge amount of machinery. You have to send signals all the way out to the toes and all the way back, and they're surprisingly slow in the brain. It's about 300,000 times slower than signals move around in a computer. Hmm. So it would be like if you were a NASA operator controlling the Mars rover. There's a delay between when you send the signals signals, and when you get the feedback. and feedback. Hmm. And so what happens is the brain is very... It puts a lot of effort into making sure that it knows exactly the timing of sending signals out and when it's getting signals back. And that's how you walk, for example.
12: Do you want the camera? Come to get the
9: camera. So this is like what toddlers learn in reverse. Aren't they learning the timings to get the left foot out in front of the right? So that's
10: exactly what they're doing. They're calibrating the timing of their whole nervous system.
6: That's interesting because my kid's 10 months old and I think he's in this calibrating period. So I stand up. So what's happening with him now is he's standing, but then it looks like he's about to take a step, but then right, he's about to, oh mm-hmm. thud. That was his little spill. Yes. <laughs> that was good. <laughs> so basically, you're saying his little brain is trying to figure out the timing of electricity racing from brain to foot and foot back to brain. Yes. Mission Control is going. Okay, you're sending a message to the feet. We expect it back in 300 milliseconds. Oh. oh, tumble fall.
10: Take
0: three.
6: Okay, we're going to try now 280 milliseconds. Okay, 280,
10: go. Went <laughs> down to two. Oh. <laughs> tumble, fall. That's exactly right. A lot of trial and error until you get the timing right. But get it right, now you're a walker. Right.
6: Three,
0: four, how many? Oh, my God. You're, like, running.
10: Now, something that happens in, let's say, multiple sclerosis.
6: And maybe also when you get old, says David.
10: Is that the timing starts to change because there's damage to the sheathing around the nerves, and that slows down certain signals. So then the brain says, oh, I thought my foot should have hit the ground by now, but it hasn't, so I'm gonna send out a corrective motor command. And then finally the signal does come back, and you've sent out this corrective motor command, and you'll stumble.
7: With each step, you fall forward slightly, and then catch yourself from falling.
9: Now we're going to fall far from home. We're going to have to travel a good (laughs) many light years off the planet to fall in this particularly special and gruesome way. Our faller is Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's an astronomical physicist.
6: Is that what he is? Yeah. Here he is at the Herbst Theater. I like saying that. Herbst 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 Theater in San San Francisco. Francisco. In front of an audience talking about...
9: uh, Falling apart.
2: I'm minding my own business on the airplane, and someone looks and sees what I'm doing. They find out I do astrophysics. The outcome to questions... When will life end? Will the asteroid come? Will the Aztec calendar destroy the Earth? There's all, there's, it goes on and on. So I figured people like death and mayhem. So I might as well title the book with that because there's a whole chapter on how to die as you fall into a black hole, which I personally think is a kind, kind of cool way to die. Because what happens is the gravity of the black hole is extreme, as you can imagine. Light doesn't even escape its gravity is so extreme. Light traveling at the speed of light, all right? So if light doesn't come out, nothing's coming out, it's black, you fall in, you're not coming out, it's a one-way trip, <laughs> okay? So you don't just die because you disappear. You, you die long before you disappear. As you fall in, the gravity at your feet becomes rapidly greater than the gravity at your head. So your feet start falling faster than your head does. That's a bad situation to be in. <laughs> you don't really... Now, initially, you kind of feel good, you know? Because mm. it, it's... Every, you, we all stretch when you wake up in the morning. Initially, it feels like a stretch. But what happens is that stretch continues beyond comfort levels. <laughs> and you reach a point where... And they're called the tidal forces, tides on your body, basically. The tidal force comes so great that they exceed the intermolecular forces that bind your flesh. And so the point comes where you snap into two pieces, likely to happen at the base of your spine. Now you are two pieces. Now, now I know you didn't ask about this, but. <laughs> it turns out you will survive that snap because below your waist, while there are important organs, there are no vital organs below your waist. So. Your torso will stay alive for a little while, okay, until you bleed to death. But this all happens much faster than it would take to bleed to death. So these two pieces then feel tidal forces, and then they snap into two pieces. And then they snap again into eight, and then 16, and then you're bifurcating your way down. And so eventually it's your head and multiple other parts. And so that will continue until you are a stream of atoms descending toward the abyss. And it turns out that's not the worst of it, (laughs) okay? The worst, it turns out the fabric of space and time funnels down towards a black hole. So the space that you occupy up here is larger than the space you occupy down here. So in fact, you're getting, while you're getting stretched, you're getting squeezed. Extruded through the fabric of space like toothpaste through a tube. I
6: fall to pieces, falling apart. Well, we're we're about to fall away, I think we can oh, yes. one Nice one. Fall nice away. one, Crowich. Before we do, though, uh, know that we have a podcast. It's at radiolab.org. I'm Jad Abumrad. I'm Robert Kowich. Bye.
7: This is Joan Murray. Radiolab is produced by Jad Abumrad and Tim Howard.
13: Their staff includes Ellen Horn, Soren Wheeler, Lulu Miller, Brenna Farrell, Pat Walters, and Lynn Levy.
7: With help from Sharon Shattuck, Raymond Tungakar, Sam Roudman, and Nicole Curie.
13: Special thanks to Ari Daniel Shapiro, and Huang, Emily Corwin, April Kinzer, and the City Arts and Lectures in San Francisco. How was that, guys? This is Fred Coolidge,
4: all about the hypnic jerk. Bye.
1: Radio Lab is supported by the John Templeton Foundation, funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder. Learn about the researchers making the latest discoveries in the science of well-being, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org podcast.